This show is sponsored by Koyeb.com, a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally. Stick around till the ad break to hear more. This is Cup of Go for October 20, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I'm Andy Williams. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks thanks so much for having me here. Uh, it's a bit of a shame I had to step in, but I'm happy to help. Well, thanks for coming back. If you're wondering, Shai got drafted for non-combat duty due to the conflict happening, of course, in, between Israel and Hamas. So we wish him the best. Our thoughts are with him, and we hope to have him back soon. But let's talk about some Go news. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, no proposals this week. I think the, the team didn't meet. Um, but looking through what's going on, it seemed like news in Go PLS, or uh, please, if that's what you prefer, is quite interesting. That, if you please. If you please. I was always going to say that, but I couldn't quite. <laughs> so 0.14 is in pre-release phase right now. And it seems like all the tasks that they're expecting to do for this release are done. So we could expect it to land quite soon. There's a number of really interesting new features in here. There's good support here for um, refactoring inline calls to functions, uh, removing unused parameters, and new support for the Go embed directives. But the reason I think this is really interesting to call out is I don't know if anybody remembers there was a conversation about telemetry a little while ago. And they are providing opt-in telemetry with this release. So you can go ahead and check that out right now. There is a, a quite clear indication that this is only opt-in and it's only if you want. But it's interesting to see this coming back to the fore in a project that's, you know, not, not particularly core to the library, perhaps, in its first instance. I don't know how you feel about this one, Jonathan. So I will answer that. But first, I want to give a, just a really quick summary of what GoPlease is, because I think some people probably don't know. If you're using VS Code, and I think Goland or any other IDE or editor, and some other tools, GoPLS is the Go sort of server that does code analysis for you and provides that a lot of the refactoring and analysis functionality to these tools. So it's, it's a really useful tool. You're probably using it and may not even realize it. So that's, that's a summary of what it is. Now, how do I feel about this? Um, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about the refactoring capabilities they're adding. Yeah. I'm probably going to install the, uh, the pre-release as soon as we finish recording. Telemetry. Uh, so, I mean, we, Shai and I talked about this on the show, what, six months ago? It's been, a, been quite a while. I might contradict myself because I don't remember what I said then. But I think I'm excited about the telemetry. I mean, I, I can see the, the reason for concern. You know, as you said before we recorded, telemetry and open source projects is always kind of a sticky issue. But I, I think it's useful. And I am happy to share some usage data about how I use GoPLS or Go in general to the Go team, if that means that they can better serve me as a Go developer. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there. And I understand that folk could be a little bit upset if this was an opt-out or if it was really kind of hidden away or some tools decided to opt you into something that was maybe not actually required by, by the team. But it is going to provide so much useful information. And if it's going to make the project better, it seems like a really good, a really good idea. When, when you're running an open source project, it can be really tough to figure out what people really want from the latest features, the GitHub issue lists, although helpful, and I'm sure many projects get lots of suggestions, not always going to provide a good analysis of the overall feeling of the community. So hopefully this really helps the project um, in general, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. So I'm looking forward to this release. And like I said, I'm going to start using it even before it's released. I'm, I'm that excited about it. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And I think, like you said, it's pretty much universal um, these days. I know that Golang for a, for a long time had their own implementation for the language server specifics, but I, th I think that um, GoPLS has been behind it now for a good time. I can't remember exactly, but I think we're in the vicinity of a year already. So we'll see this rolling out pretty much universally, I would expect. Cool. Well, let's move on. I learned about a new conference coming up this last week that I think is worth mentioning. GopherCon Brazil will be coming in May, so it's still quite a ways off, but the CFP is open until December 15. So if you live near Florianopolis, I hope I said that right, or will be in the area in May, be sure to submit your uh, proposal to speak at GopherCon Brazil. And if I can somehow convince my wife that it's worth the flight cost, uh, I'll see you there. I would love to go to Brazil again. Oh, that would be an amazing place to go for, for a conference as well. I hope that we can make it too. And it's also nice oh, yeah. to see something earlier in the year. I don't know about you, but it feels like it's just been full on conferences from kind of like early September right the way through to uh, late November this year. It's just uh, everything all at once, it seems. Yeah, there have been a ton of conferences. I mean, I, I don't know. I need to talk to the organizers of some of these conferences. Like, who does a conference in November? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's on me or the, the dates that were available for the community. But it is amusing to see after we picked the date, the 3rd of November for FightConf, like two or three more popped up in that same week. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we can't all be in three places at one to, to be able to do that. Well, it's, it's good to see conferences wherever they are and whenever they are. Absolutely, yeah. I just wish I could be at all of them. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think that's all we had for for conferences right now. Clearly, there's a number of them still to happen, but uh, we've announced them all on the show before. The next item that I I thought would be really interesting to talk about was forward compatibility. Now, a little while ago, there was a post about extending the forward compatibility uh, so that we can better mark which features are required for a project in the gut compiler is going to be able to access the right toolchain, um, and we're going to have a much better experience going forward. Uh, this was introduced in 121, and it's been, I think, really well received by people who are always on the latest version of the toolchain. But the reason I wanted to bring it up is there have been a growing number of bugs, both in the Go project and in a number of the, the larger libraries around about it, highlighting that once your project is using 121, not only um, does it not uh, compile on earlier versions, but the Go module literally can't be parsed by them. So we saw a really harsh transition from a new format of the Go mod into requiring it. Now, of course, just because you use Go 121 on your project locally doesn't mean that this impacts the entire project. But as soon as you update your module file to say that 121 is what's needed, and if you're creating a new project with 121, of course, this is going to happen by default. What this means is, unlike previous versions of Go, this project will no longer be compilable, usable, or like I said, even parsable by older versions of the project. Now, this is really helpful to, like they said, ensure good compatibility going forward, but it's a fairly harsh shift. And I just think it's really important that people know that this is happening so that we don't just see more projects moving to the latest version of Go when they don't really require any of the functionality that version added. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about this aspect. I mean, it's, it's actually bitten me. I was trying to run a project uh, that was tagged for Go 1.21. On, on my laptop, I think I had still 120 installed and it couldn't parse things. And I was like, what? So yeah, I, th I think that's annoying and arguably a bug in the sense that that's never happened before. I mean, if I have a yeah. module initialized with Go 1.20, I can compile it with Go 1.17, assuming it doesn't depend on any new features of the language. Absolutely. So I think in retrospect, they should have added a new keyword that old versions would ignore 
that would make it more strict. And I, actually, I don't even know if that's possible because I don't know what the old versions look for. You know, if they had a new keyword called, I don't know, go ver instead of go, would that, would they puke on that? I don't know. But we're already there. They're not changing it. So on the other hand, I've also been bitten by the opposite. I have an open source project I maintain that cannot use generics because it still needs to be run on some old Go implementations that don't support Go 1.18 yet. And it's very difficult to determine what dependencies do and don't use Go 118. Like there's no automated way to do it. You have to go manually inspect the go.mod file of each dependency and each indirect dependency to see if it does that or not, or just try it and see what breaks. So this would be a nice quick way. If they had this feature back in Go 1.18, it would make it really quick to determine when things would and wouldn't break. I, I completely agree with you there. And I've definitely been through, in fact, still do go through the process of checking the dependencies of the dependencies to to see if there are any breaking usages of, of newer versions buried down in there. And it is a pain, but we do have continuous integration servers which can do these things for us. And so, yeah, I appreciate the change to something that is concrete, you know, actually defining what the requirements are. I just wish that it had been possible to do this in an easier migration so that the new version number was supported before it was required and perhaps taken that year cycle to um, move to the ability to understand the new format so that then it would be introduced in a manner that other systems would understand, I suppose. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's, there's a little challenge there. But it seems to me um, that what this has done is, is introduced a new format that's not understood by a previous version. And it feels really close to like a, a breaking change in metadata, um, which is it's a bit unfortunate because the promise of backwards compatibility in the language itself is phenomenal. The team have done an amazing job, you know, to get through this number of years. And as you, as you guys said in a previous episode, the, the no version two is very exciting to know we're not going to go through that pain. But I would hope that going forward, it's possible for, for metadata and build parameters like this to be better understood in a rolling, uh, in a rolling cycle so that teams have got a while to adapt to these changes. I completely agree. <laughs> cool. Well, another story that's sort of a follow-up from a previous story. Um, I actually discovered this a couple of weeks ago. There's a third-party Go library that provides a whole bunch of compression algorithms for Go. And I thought this was worth bringing up because a few episodes ago, we talked about the proposal to add Z standard compression to the standard library. Um, if you don't want to wait for that, then you can use klauspost slash compress, github.com slash klauspost slash compress. Of course, link in the show notes if that's easier. But it provides a whole bunch of compression and decompression utilities, which are pretty handy, uh, including Z standard compression, optimized implementations of gzip, zip, zlib, and deflate, and a whole bunch of other things. So I just wanted to call that out. If you are waiting for that proposal, you don't have to wait. You can start using these things already. Absolutely. Yeah. It's great to have these all in one place. I can't believe actually that the, that was a beautiful segue there with, with Zed's STD. I think that was the last time I was on here as well. So it's a little bit bizarre that I'm bringing somehow uh, <laughs> along a, a <laughs> consistent Saving it topic. for you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, definitely check out the library. There's, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Hopefully, yeah. If more people pick it up, then it'll become somewhat standardized, perhaps in, until um, more of these are brought into the main library. So, Jonathan, I don't know if you have been reading much recently, but there's a great new book out, um, GRPC Microservices in Go. I'm terrible with names as well, I'm afraid, but I think that would be by Hussein Babel. I don't honestly know. And this has been published by Manning. It looks like a really good read, especially if anybody's looking to get more into gRPC, which I would include myself in that list. 
honestly, but full disclosure, I have sitting on my book here the previous GRPC uh, Go for Professionals by uh, Clement, uh, I think it's Jim, who handed me a copy very kindly at GoForCon London. Uh, apologies, I still haven't read that one. So I'm, I'm going to be building up my backlog and excited to learn more about GRPC. But how about yourself? I know you've managed to read more than me. That book is also in my reading list. It's probably number two in my list. Right now I'm reading Shipping Go, which is another Manning publication that came out a few months ago. And I have a, such a long list. Uh, I read a lot, but I don't have a lot of time to read Go books, unfortunately, because one of my favorite things to do on my YouTube channel is to review Go books. So it's unfortunate I don't have time to read more. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I wish I had more time. There's, there's actually so much good stuff out there now. I've been really impressed by the quality of writing. Basically, for everybody who's putting books out into the Go community, they seem very approachable and helpful. Definitely a nice place to be. So yeah, apologies. I've not had a chance to read this one yet. But uh, anyhow, I'd recommend it. And uh, and hopefully one of us will get to posting a review or a better summary later on. Yeah. Speaking of reading, have you read the recent Go blog, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Type Inference, and a little bit more? It certainly was more um, than I wanted to know about type inference, but very interested. What did you take from it? Uh, so the key takeaway for me was learning what type inference is. And of course, once you understand that, then you want to read more. Um, and it's a fairly long blog post, especially you know considering the length of most of the Go blog posts we have from the Go team. This one's pretty long and detailed. So maybe I'll start with a summary so that the rest of the listeners will want to go read the rest, as, as I did, at least hopefully. So type inference is the ability to automatically deduce, either partially or fully, the type of an expression at compile time. Uh, the compiler is often able to infer the type of a variable or the type signature of a function without explicit type annotations. So, you know, if, if you've been writing Go, you know that you don't always have to specify the type of something, right? Especially with, we have untyped constants and, you know, you can pass variables or, or you can assign to a variable without specifying the type. What type does it get when you do that? That's all type inference. And uh, so this blog post sort of goes into, of course, what it is and then how Go does it. So it's, it's really informative, and I, I think it will help you, if nothing else, understand the Go you're writing better. Yeah, absolutely. I love when you're able to get into the, the weeds a little bit here. I often find myself going to conference talks when they're analyzing the compiler, perhaps the, the garbage collector and things like that. It's not necessary, perhaps, to understand the ins and outs of it in your day-to-day -day work, but it certainly helps you get a better understanding for the language. And sooner or later, you're going to realize that is impacting your ability to write good code and perhaps even more maintainable stuff working with your team. So uh, yeah, excellent to take a deep dive now and again. One last story we have on our list here. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan, so much. One of the things I, I wanted to talk about actually was, as I would have mentioned in a previous episode, I'm gearing up to, to FineConf, which hopefully is going to be a great gathering of, of fine developers and people looking to learn more about building graphical apps with Go. And in the meantime, it's really exciting to see that the community have been working away on some pretty exciting projects. So Patrice Ferlet has been working on a number of projects, actually, but he most recently just announced a full multimedia package and video player for audio and visual playback inside a fine application. He's managed to, to make it really smooth, get the audio sync and everything working well. So now you can with a very simple API, interact with your multimedia inside your application. And at the same time, Paul Brown just landed a really massive pull request into the Fine Extensions, a, a collection of widgets the community have contributed to the project for interactive diagramming. So, you know, imagine drawing, drawing lines between nodes, moving them around and on screen. And he's managed to set this up so that each of the nodes is a canvas area with any content that you want. So you can extend it to, to whatever purpose. Uh, these are two really big um, changes that 
have just kind of like made me sit back for a minute and go, wow, it's it's really impressive what people are building with the toolkit that's been put together and the capabilities that are out there. So, you know, call out to, to both them for the hard work. Uh, it's just really nice to see the, the community collaborating on stuff. And hopefully we can show these off and, and m- many more things on, on the blog or in videos of our conference in a, in a couple of weeks time. So yeah, thanks everyone for keeping on a really great set of functionality whilst everybody else is busy. Awesome. Well, I think that rounds us out for the news for this week. Uh, stick around after the ad break. We'll be re- listening to an interview with Eliav Levy. Shai and I interviewed him about JSON, among other things, a popular topic these days. So the, the interview was recorded a few weeks ago, but we're including it in today's episode. So stick around to hear that. <laughs> Coyab is a developer-friendly serverless platform to deploy apps globally. No ops, servers, or infrastructure management. You can run web apps, APIs, event-driven serverless functions, background workers, and even cron jobs. I'm also excited to announce that this week, Coyab is offering $50 of free Coyab credits if you're willing to fill out a two-second form with code CUPAGO. There's a link in the description. It's a long URL with random characters in it, so I'm not going to read it to you. But Link in the description, fill out this two-second form, and you can get $50 of free credit from Koyeb just for filling out a little form. And also a reminder that uh, Koyeb is now in four new locations. They have multiple region deployments, so you aren't stuck with, you know, a lot of the new cloud providers. They just have one data center. Not true with Koyeb. You get to deploy multi-region for high availability. So they have a total of uh, six regions now across three locations, and they're super simple to use. You should check them out. Koyeb's awesome. Aside from Koyab, if you are new to the show, thanks for joining. We've been getting a lot of new listeners lately, so we're really excited about that. Almost every episode breaks a record. Share the show with your friends, with your colleagues, with your with your mother, with your pet. I don't know. Share it with people. Let them know about it because we're getting a ton of great feedback. Every week, somebody new tells me either in person or on, on Twitter or somewhere. We love the show. So it seems to be popular. Uh, share it with your with your friends and colleagues. Absolutely. I Just to add to the people you can share it with, I just recently took my fantastic Brewster mug that you can get from store.cupago.dev, I guess, and went down to the barista in the building where I work. Um, there's lots of tech startups there. So I took it down and told them not only who Brewster was, why he was so cute and why gophers mattered, but that they should listen to the podcast, check out the language as well. Um, and of course, it helps to have a mascot uh, quite as adorable as that on your coffee mug. Uh, I, I was at the Amsterdam Go Meetup a couple of weeks ago, and some of the some of the recruiters, I, th- I think they were technical recruiters who were helping to host the event. They weren't really Go developers. They were asking for a mug uh, with the with the traditional Gopher because we gave those to our speakers. And they asked me, Jonathan, can we get a mug like that? I said, I, you can. I mean, I, I can get one for you, or I can give you one of these. Would you like the Brewster mug? And they both said, Oh, we want the Brewster mug. So sorry, Gopher, you've been outcuted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like that's a challenge extended, and I know that folk are often trying to find the latest, greatest plushie for their conference. So given that we're in the middle of the season, maybe we will see some exciting new entrants into into the market. I don't know. Um, But yeah, hopefully you've really enjoyed the show today. Do feel free or actually please do leave a review for us on Spotify, iTunes uh, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really, really helps to spread the word. But also do please drop in to go for Slack. Um, we're in Cup Go, where you can chat with the community, offer some suggestions for future topics or ask more about what we've covered in the show. Also, you can reach us at cupago.dev or email to news at cupago.dev. We'd be delighted to hear from you, whether it's suggestions, comments, feedback, just, you know, 
get in touch and, and be part of the show in the future. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And, and a shout out to Peter Aronoff on the Cup of Go Slack channel. He's the one who actually brought the Go PLS story for today's show to my attention. So we, we listen and we try to you know air the, those stories. If you know of something happening, come tell us about it. Well, I think that's it for today. Stick around for our interview with Eliav Levy and hope to see you all next week. Yep. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. Obviously, I really hope to, to see Shai back on the show sometime soon. Uh, all the best uh, to him and anybody who's caught up in that. Thanks for having me and I'll see you again. Cheers. Hey, John. Hi, Shai. Do you like JSON format? No. Yeah, neither do I. But I wish someone could be here to talk with us about how to make it faster. That would be cool. Hey, Liav. Hey, I guess I'm your guy for the job. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so everybody meet Eliav. Eliav meet everybody. Eliav, how about you introduce yourself? So I'm Eliav. I currently live in Tel Aviv, actually all my life. And I uh, work as a software engineer at Lunar.dev for a year now. I've done several things before that. And I'm also a classically trained musician. Uh, so I play the theorbo and the lute, which is a very, it's my other nerdy thing. Like every nerd should have two nerdy things. So this is my second nerdy thing to do. Yeah. So that's like a, uh, like, uh, what I do at night, at the day, during the day, I'm like a developer, I guess, uh, engineer. And, uh, I've been working in Go for like seven months now, I think, enjoying the ride quite much. And, uh, yeah, that's quite about me. So you mentioned you work for, uh, Lunal. Shout out to Lunar that the reason uh, we're sort of talking. Full disclosure, I worked there a little bit as a contractor. And you, we sort of set up the recent Go meetup at your company, a Go Israel meetup. Uh, and you all were super good hosts. Uh, so shout out to Lunar. Do you want to tell our listeners what, what you all do before we move on to what you gave the talk about, which is super interesting? Of course. So what Lunar Dev does is um, actually like help API consumers, which is so many of us actually, uh, consume APIs better. The idea is that there are many, many tools out there for uh, API providers, people who actually like uh, set up their uh, services as like an API to do their job better. But on the other end, like there are API consumers who we believe aren't getting the required attention that they should get. And the tooling is actually quite lacking for them. So for example, problems like rate limiting and caching and the need like for uh, authentication to reestablish authentication, et cetera, et cetera. There are tons of problems with consuming APIs, which are like conventionally just perceived as, okay, that's life. That's what like you have to do as a developer. But um, we know that there is a lot of things that can be done uh, and we hear the same problems over and over. So what we're actually doing is we uh, we're like building a platform, which is pretty cool, that uh, is agnostic to whatever API you're consuming uh, and can help you solve this problem as a configuration and not as code. So, yeah, so we work a lot with API. This is why like like the talk I gave uh, was about like JSON in Go, because uh, a major part of the system is written in Go and JSON is one of the uh, more uh, important data transport formats that we need to uh, to attend to. So um, we have a lot of like dealings in Go in our system with JSON. So this is like, uh, like Lunar in a nutshell. Essentially, it's like something that you, as an API consumer, you just run our platform on your cloud setup and you just consume whatever API you're consuming. Again, we'd like, we don't care whatever you're consuming. You just consume whatever you are already consuming just through your very local Lunar instance. And if you need like, to solve any consumption problems, such as caching or rate 
meeting, et cetera, et cetera. You can just like declare it as a configuration and um, a YAML configuration at the moment and hocus pocus problems just go away, which is pretty cool. It's a pretty cool thing to see like uh, people like uh, there's a smile that you see when you like solve this, like really sometimes this problem can be really hard, specifically rate limiting, but not only. It's nice. The accomplishment like to solve and make people happy. It's like it's uh, I really like that kind of feeling. I'm really curious to hear about some of your experience with uh, with JSON and Go because that's been an area of of uh, pain and investigation on my part as well. <laughs> uh, what has been maybe the biggest problem you've had to face managing JSON and Go that, that you've experienced? Right. So uh, to answer your question directly, we had like two two kind of like uh, things we need to work with JSON and Go, and they're quite different. This was like the main point, I think, in my talk that um, like we, we usually aspire for like choosing the right tool for the job, but sometimes there are two jobs and sometimes you need two kind of tools to solve two different problems. So the classic problem that I think most of us like face is like we need to like serialize and deserialize um, JSON text or like raw JSON into some structs that we already know the structure of, right? We uh, we know that we're expecting some kind of a message and we want to take it in or encode it uh, in order to send it out as JSON. And when we do that, like we need to declare a struct usually and, and like use the standard library or any other like uh, JSON uh, library such as GoJSON, which is the one we're using. And this is like the classic scenario. This was like more like straightforward for us. Like, okay, we're not we're not going to use the uh, standard library. We're going to pick some other library. But we did have because of like performance concerns. But we did have like another very interesting scenario at work because Lunar like develops an API consumption platform. Sometimes we don't know. I mean, not sometimes. We we always are unaware and we cannot know the structure of JSON object that our users are going to like pass through the system because it's their concern. It's, it's their data. We have no idea. It's literally unstructured data from beginning to end. And we needed like to obfuscate the, the values of JSON for them because they want to like keep it and uh, keep the values like they pass messages to their API providers or get it back from them. And they want to like uh, save the data, but in a hashed version. Uh, so there are no, no PII leakage or something like that. And it's a kind of feature that like customers were like asking for. Can you save our payloads in a uh, obfuscated manner? And there is like, this is an entirely different kind of challenge because we don't know the structs. We can't write the structs. We have, we literally don't want to know the struct because this is like makes our platform not agnostic and like would not make the job possible. And there you need like, like kind of, um, an approach that treats JSON as something that is unstructured, which is, you can't do that with the standard library, but we found that like, uh, eventually we're using fast JSON, which is a very cool library in order to like traverse unstructured JSON and modify or build your own objects on the fly without needing to know them. So um, yeah, I think it's like, it's, it's very cool for me, like to think that there is no one tool for the job. You need like to be very like specific uh, on what you're choosing and why. So let me challenge that for a second. Why do you need unstructured data? At the end of the day, it's not like you're working with internal API. Usually, or, or I could say for, for many of the cases, you work with known APIs. You know your your customers, let's say in uh, in Luna or whatever, they can give you a list. They say, "Oh, we want to talk to Slack. We want to talk to you know, I don't know, AWS. This this endpoint, this endpoint, this endpoint. We could like generate all the schemas. So is this a case of 
it has to be 100%, like I have to care about all the long tail? Or is this more of a case of just maintaining all these schemas is unreasonable? Or like, because again, most of the APIs we work with are declared somewhere, because otherwise you, you can't work with them in the application layer at the end. Someone has to know what's that JSON, because someone has to parse it somewhere. Essentially, you're asking, like, why did we want to be agnostic to schema? Yeah, you mentioned it as like a benefit. Okay, so I'll explain why. I do think it's a benefit. Think about it that, like, in order to grow, if we had, like, to take in requests from every customer that is coming in and, like, make this, like, kind of, like, talk during, like, um, the integration cycle that, okay, which API are you working with? And then we need to, like, to fetch the schema and, like, literally encode it in our code base as structs uh, and have it, like, hard hard-coded, commit it, push it, and deploy it, it would slow us down eventually. Because the problem is in its essence, the problem doesn't require you to know the schema. Because like obfuscating, hashing the values of a JSON object doesn't really require you to know the schema. So eventually it's like it was more worthy for us like to keep it out. If I can have less code in my code base and like not pollute the, the, the code base with a lot of structs which are describing the API uh, schemas of my customers, that sounds like a big win for me. So yeah, we could have done that. But I think like in the long run, it would really, really slow us down. And also like from a, a more like a puristic standpoint, I think having like my customers structs in my code base like just feels wrong to me. It's just like it's not my concern. Like, it's not my domain. It's not, I don't want it. Like, there is a, bound, a domain boundary there, which I, I, I wish not to cross if I can. And I think we can. So there you have it. Cool. That does make sense. Although there is a small, small part of me that just wishes that maybe Protobuf was the standard and everybody <laughs> compiled schemas everywhere. And Jason was the weird, uh, you know, kid that, uh, that's, that's experimental and weird. And everything was serialized in binary and everything was efficient. I know, I know. <laughs> what a world, what a world could it have been? Let's just create a new standard. That'll solve everything. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so let's talk about your background before Go and your, your comparison. So I understand you were a Scala developer first, is that right? Yeah, I, I worked in Scala. I did many things. Um, I, uh, Scala was part of my stack, yeah. So how has it been taking on Go after having done Scala for so long? What, what have you liked? What have you not liked? Has it been a challenge? What, talk, talk about your experience there. So uh, before I moved to Go, like in my previous company, I worked mainly in Scala and in, in, in Node.js. And um, okay. I think it, it's an interesting, like uh, the typing issue is like always a big thing for me. Like uh, I was quite happy like that we chose Go as a compiled language that has like native support for struct. I think this is like the number one thing I need uh, in a programming language. And when I saw that, like the way Go like treats data and how like uh, the approach for data, again, like structs being like the main workhorse that you work with, um, it made me happy. It made, like I felt at home in many ways. In Scala, we have, um, this is like also a very, it's very central to the language. And it's not so obvious, like people coming from other languages, such as like vanilla JavaScript or Ruby or Python and stuff like that. It's not so obvious that you work with this kind of uh, constructs in your day-to-day work. For me, this is like where it all starts. I, I need this to be happy. And Go does like offer like pristine support for working with data. So coming from Scala, this was like the first thing that like reassured me that I'm, I'm in a good place. And then I like discovered many other features, which are quite different. Uh, mainly, I think Go's approach to concurrency and to... I don't want to say async because it's not async, but in Scala, we used to like talk about async and now like my mind needed to shift. And th- this was like probably like the biggest challenge because it's so different. You know, um, I think Go is very special in that regard. It's like for me, it feels it still feels a bit like unconventional, it's very uh, 
in many ways, it's simpler, the approach to concurrency. In many ways, it's, it's just like so unique for, for me coming from, uh, from Node, JS, and Scala. Before that, I worked in Ruby, so I, we didn't have that problem because there is no concurrency at all up till now. <laughs> but yeah, it was like kind of like a soft landing. It was, I felt as like the, 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 there's like tons of like resources online. It was fairly like smooth way in, like the learning curve was like, okay. Uh, so yeah, it was, it's a, actually, it's quite a fun journey, I think. And like, there's always more to learn, of course. And um, I think it's a great community tons of useful stuff online which is always beneficial and it's vibrant it's like it's happening now there's yeah. something very current about go it's like it's happening now uh which i like <laughs> that's cool do you have any advice for anybody who's thinking about uh or maybe they're just getting started on their journey towards go what advice can you offer to, to maybe help them or encourage them they're just getting going haha <laughs> i'm gonna let that one go that's a tough one <laughs> i'd let that go let that go just kidding uh so yeah i think i think uh there is a website that really like helped me get started, uh, go by example. I think it's just like, it's very concise. It's like covered topic by topic. It's for people who have some background in programming. It's like not for like complete beginners, but if you're like coming from another programming language, then it's just like covers in a very terse manner, very important topics that you know you should have the knowledge in. And sometimes it's not very trivial. Again, concurrency is probably the main thing for me, but may maybe for other people, it's like other topics. So uh, everybody has their own journey. And it's just very, 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 very uh, simple to follow. It's very, it's like one pages per topic and uh, it covers most of the the basics and the important things. Uh, so this was like my number one. Re I still come back to it <laughs> every once in a while. So yeah, go by example. It's like, check it out. It's very nice. Awesome. Put a link to that in the show notes. Right. Yeah, for sure. It seems like every person has their own way of learning. Like, you know, some people got into Go, they just read like the Go book. Some people build a project. Some people do boot camps. We interviewed the uh, people behind Boot Dev, which is like a you know online boot camp, eight months of whatever. I've never heard anyone saying, "Yeah, go by example is not good." Like one pager of examples of just what I need with a small explanation and a b whole bunch of code first. Everybody seems to like that one. Maybe it's just the best format. Yeah, I mean, I, I do support. I think like building something is like probably also a great idea. I did this a little. We kind of like already started like we, we were kind of stressed with time. So we already started out like building the thing. Some people had like prior knowledge, so it was helpful. Yeah, I mean, uh, I built some small stuff on the side. It was it was fun. As, as I said, like working with data is like uh, the way I, th I think about everything I do starts with like modeling the uh, the data. So, um, yeah, so it's like, I just started like, okay, let's like build some structs to describe things and see how you do that and that in Go. I would take like ideas that I had in Scala and Node.js and like transpile, like translate them to Go. Um, pretty helpful, even though short. Wow. Transpiling Scala to Go. I just got to chill up my spine. Yeah. Don't, don't do that at home. Don't Nobody try. ever build that transpiler, please. Don't try that. Yeah. So one thing, you know, you gave your talk at the GopherCon and one, the Gopher Meetup, sorry. And uh, one thing that was interesting for me, and I think a lot of the audience were a bit surprised, is you showed a comparison table of all the different JSON libraries that you evaluated. And then you, you know, fast JSON didn't rank really well on that comparison table. It didn't have a lot of checks. It didn't look very attractive. But then throughout the talk, you explained how like, you know, benchmarks can and comparison tables can sometimes be deceiving. 
Can you expand on that a little bit? Because, you know, if we were going just by the sensationalist readme pages, it seems like FastJSON isn't the correct choice all the time. Right. That's a, it's a very interesting question for me. The reason I showed in my talk, I showed like this table that I found on some blog post, which was quite popular. We can send a link later. And yeah, as you say, like we chose uh, in Lunar Dev, we chose GoJSON, FastJSON. And on that table, that specific table, FastJSON like, didn't look like luminous. It was like a lot of red emojis, blah, blah, blah. So my claim was that it's kind of like dangerous or not might not be the, the wisest thing to do, like just to be fixated by comparison tables that you find on blog posts, because there is something very lab like, like laboratory like about those tables. And people like make like the most demanding and specific if, if they do the benchmarking correct, which is also a question. But let's assume that the benchmarking like is all OK. It might be not the wisest idea because maybe that's not what you need. Like maybe you don't have like the requirements that they were aspiring to test. And as somebody who builds systems, you should have your own benchmarking and like set your own aspiration. And then you can like say, okay, fast JSON like is really not going to cut it for me. It's just not, not fast enough. And maybe, maybe that will be the other way around. Uh, in our use case, what the, the thing that we were doing with it, it was actually quite beneficial. Uh, it did improve things for us. So we were quite happy to use it. And again, like those tables are just like one person or sometimes two, two people opinion. They might be wrong. They look like very like authoritative and conclusive, but it just not, might not be true for, for you, for your specific cause. So it's okay. Like to take, uh, like the opinions of others, but, uh, it's also a very good idea. Like to, uh, to have your own way to test what works for you. Also the developer experience that FastJSON offers is so superior in our obfuscation use case, which I described earlier, that I think like it was really worth it. So all in all, it was really like the best choice for us uh, for that specific task. I guess it's the answer is always it depends. <laughs> like you want to take other people's answers, but just it's always it depends. Yeah. Keep it complex. Cool, Eliav. If people want to talk more about JSON or perhaps other less painful subjects, such as uh, Lut and Theorbo, uh, or even API consumption, again, shout out to Luna. Thank you for hooking us up. And thanks, Chen. I, I don't know if you're listening. You're busy. But shout out to Chen for making this whole thing happen, actually. Uh, where can people reach you? So uh, I'm available over at Eliav L at Lunar Dev. That's E-L-I-A-V at Lunar dot Dev. Also on Twitter, a little. Eliav Lavi, just my name, E-L-I-A-V-L-A-V-I. Yeah, like I'm happy to chat about um, APIs and early music <laughs> and JSON. Nice. You know, I recently linked someone to X to Twitter. Oh, and then yes. they sent a different link if they're on my work Slack. And they sent a different link because they said they are Twitter avoidant. If someone is Twitter avoidant, then, you know, they can follow that link. And then... I realized that instead of Twitter avoidant, you can say if you're an XXer, <laughs> you can finally have an email as well. <laughs> email is yeah. Well, we like to round out our interviews with a couple uh, standard questions. I think you've been prepared. Um, but let's start with the first one. So imagine somebody for some who knows what reason is, is holding you at gunpoint and says you have to remove a feature from Go. Or, or maybe you don't have to remove, but you have to choose the feature to remove from Go. What, what feature would you remove? With gun to my head. Yeah. It's a life or death situation here. What are you getting rid of? Okay. So yeah, if that happened, if I absolutely must, I'd get rid of code gen, code generation. I, 
I have a problem with that feature. Oh wow! It's like it's a, it's a it's a side feature, like it's not a core feature, but it's it's widely used, I think. And um, I have issues with that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. You want you want to explain your issues, or or, or you want to leave yeah. it at that? Yeah, sure. It's not too personal. I can talk about that. Uh, <laughs> it's just like I find it like um, weird, like to have some CLI generate code for me that I then have to take responsibility for and commit. Uh, to GitHub, and there is this cumbersomeness about like having it committed or having the CI generated uh, for me on the fly and just commit like generate it locally. It's all, it just never feels right. It's like this huge file that like contains a lot of code. Um, it feels to me like Go's um, answer to the lack of, the the lack of macros, uh, which I totally get. Like uh, coming from Scala, like I'm used to working with macros, which is a different kind of like. Prop, set of problems. Um, I don't think there's like a good like answer to that problem. So go like say do cogen and Scala says do macros and actually like I have problems with both answers. Like uh, why couldn't problem be simpler? I guess. Okay. So yeah, cogen. Like um, if I have to choose, it, I take macros over cogen. Yeah, and I think they're like um, you know they're like interchangeable. Well, that might be the answer to this follow up question, although maybe not. Maybe there's something else. The follow up question is, what would you like to add to Go? And of course, the answer could be macros, but maybe something else is more important. What, what do you think is missing from Go? So the actually, yeah, it's almost, but the one uh, feature I would really love to see in Go is support, like really good support for union types. Uh, in Scala, we, uh, we used to talk about al algebraic data types. So it can either be something like a struct, it's called case class or a sealed family, which can be like A or B or C. So this is like, I'm still like hacking my way around to do that in Go. I need, I need this feature all the time. So union types, definitely like number one thing uh, I'd love to see. I think it's super useful. Maybe it's like uh, in a future re release of Go. I'll be happy to see that. Not surprising to see. You know, stuff that's ubiquitous in uh, Scala, making it to your wish list. Do you also want the horrible tooling that comes along with Scala? 45 minutes to install the environment? No, thank you. I actually think this is like the number one thing in Go. Uh, the tooling is just, <laughs> wow. Like, I'm, I'm stunned. Like, compilation times and tooling in general is just like, coming from Scala, this is like, wow, you can do that. Like, you can sit on your computer and like, compile in like seconds. But yeah, union types is not like Scala specific. It's actually like, uh, it's very big on TypeScript as well. So um, I think it's just like mm -hmm. becoming a way that pe people who like work through uh, structs and through uh, data modeling, it's, it's just like, it's so essential. Um, and I do like, I do hack my way around uh, like and get like some sort of support for union type, but it's not like, it's not native to the language yet. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting. Slowly, slowly. <laughs> well, Thanks a lot, Elia, for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to talk with you. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. And I hope you never have to parse any JSON file ever again. <laughs> Probably will. With pleasure. That's a reality.